731. Uh, and so this year, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded actually to three scientists for their work in developing lithium-ion batteries and creating thus a rechargeable world. When announcing the laureates, the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences in Stockholm explained the significance of lithium-ion batteries, that they have laid the foundation of a wireless and fossil fuel-free society. Let's speak with one of those laureates, Dr M. Stanley Whittingham, Professor of Chemistry and Material Science at Binghamton University. Thank you so much for joining us today. Congratulations. Thank you very much. We've had the pleasure of speaking to Nobel laureates in, in the past, and, and it's something that we have to ask you as well, your reaction when you when you heard this news. Did you, for example, see it coming in any shape or form? The answer is yes and no. It was, um, I think, predicted by Reuters and a few other press companies maybe four or five years ago then didn't happen, so I think it fell off our radar screens this year. The uh, the significance, though, can't really be understated. And to be fair, and without any disrespect to some of the other Nobel Prize winners in the past, s- some of the, the science victories are a bit beyond um, secular, ordinary person-in-the-street understanding. Lithium-ion batteries, on the other hand we've all got one probably right in front of us now and uh and and they've changed the way that we use technology especially smartphones and and things of that nature um how long had you been actually conducting research into them and into this technology um close to 50 years so i i joined exxon in 1972 and i think we built the first lithium-ion batteries later in 72 and onwards from there. So it's close to 50 years now. And if we could just address some of the practical significance, I remember when um, my first foray into rechargeable batteries, I suppose, was was, was that they um, were quite interesting, uh, certainly, certainly very helpful, but uh, they'd be often expensive and, um, and, and a bit cumbersome. Then later, the, the first phone, mobile phone models would feature batteries that y- you could easily destroy if you charge them in the wrong way. These days, they'll say things like, oh, don't worry, you can just use the phone straight away, or you know, don't worry, you don't have to charge it fully the first time you use it for a certain number of hours. Um, is that all because of the, uh, the, the way lithium-ion batteries are made compared with previous rechargeable technologies? Yes, it's partly how they're made, so we understand them much better. But it's also because the companies now make very good software to control how we use those lithium batteries. So we can't over-discharge them or overcharge them. So they make them safe and make them last much longer. How is it that you or anyone decades ago things oh you know lithium has the right properties when when did we discover this um again it was the late 60s early 70s people were looking at batteries and they looked at lithium batteries but they operated at 300 degrees centigrade and it was in the early 70s when we said we could use lithium at room temperature and the advantage of lithium is light it has a high voltage four volts today so it stores much more energy than, say, a lead-acid battery. So it's much lighter. You know, you can carry it. You can't easily carry a lead-acid battery with your smartphone. Though I must say, about 15 years ago, that's what some people were doing. 
are they generally very safe? We had the uh, certain Note 7 exploding phone, or at least uh, combustible phone scandal affecting uh, Samsung Electronics a couple of years back. Uh, can um, lithium be blamed for that? Or, or, I mean, we probably don't know all the details behind the scenes, to be fair, so it's maybe an unfair question on you. But, but if, if you don't feel comfortable going into the specifics, could you at least address for us whether we can rely on lithium-ion technology as a way of preventing such fires in the future? Um, well, I would say well-designed lithium batteries don't explode, they don't burn. I've had one on my desk now for just over 40 years. I think the issue with the Samsung Galaxy, if I can call it an Asian issue, a culture issue, and I recommend all scientists and engineers to stand up to their managers. If their managers say, put more battery in the casing, and they probably knew that it was going to create problems, but weren't willing to say no. It's interesting you say that because we've actually talked about this uh, a lot in the show in, in various areas from that awful uh, Asiana Airlines uh, crash in, in San Francisco to just general attitudes towards scientific technology and innovation in this country. Um, this, uh, this need to break out of the mould of, of respecting one's seniors so much that you kind of fail to, to get things done. Um, but when you point to it as an Asian issue, is it something that you've actually witnessed firsthand in your career? Um, I still remember going to Japan oh, in 1993. I was there for two months, and I was at the University of Tokyo. And my host there, very nice Japanese professor, he told me, you and I are going to have to plot to make the students ask questions because they've been told it's disrespectful to ask senior folks questions because you're questioning their knowledge. So we went about deliberately causing the students to ask questions. So I always say students need to ask questions, employees need to ask questions, and don't say yes sir, no sir, which is what was common many years ago. And maybe the most famous example of that is not um, in Asia. It was a crash between two 747s in the Canary Islands just off Spain where the senior pilot said go ahead and the other pilot said we shouldn't but he said go ahead anyway and they went ahead and those two planes crashed into each other I think killing 500 people. Right uh, so it can have particularly tragic consequences but even at that level of innovation that I referred to before you, you, you do have to ask sometimes questions even of the most respected minds don't you to to move forward and to reach the kind of breakthrough that would uh, lead to a nobel prize but not just a prize also the practical breakthroughs for society yes the irony then is that one of the other winners of this prize is japanese professor akira yoshino along with professor john goodenough uh, who's a trio of scientists uh, can you tell us anything about their work Yes, um, I know John Goodenough very well, so I did the initial concept idea back in the 70s. Then John Goodenough, who then moved to Oxford, so I think it's interesting here, I was an Englishman, made my invention in the States. John Goodenough was an American who made his invention in England. So he looked at my work and said, oh, the, the work, material I'm working on, lithium cobalt oxide, which he was of interest to him for magnetic properties, has the same structure, and maybe we can make that work as a lithium battery. So 
that material had four volts, our material had two and a half volts, so that gave it a big advantage. Then um, Dr. Ushino, who was at a company in Japan, said, I can make a safe anode, and he was uh, making that out of coke, so that intercalated the lithium. So it's really 1970s, 19, early 1980s, then the Japanese work was uh, late 1980s, and that finally made it a commercially successful product. So it's really a three-step process. Right. Um, and despite some of the cultural limitations that we referred to before, Japan has had a significant level of success with Nobel Prize laureates in, in the sciences. Not at all here in, in Korea, as it happens. Um, this country did have the honour of the Nobel Peace Prize in the past, but not um, not for the sciences. And, and often we also um, ask whether we're just not investing in science in the right way. Do you feel that your research was greatly helped by the commercial interests as well in in having this kind of technology? Um, I think, yes, when I joined Exxon, Exxon was the world's largest oil company at that time. It wanted to become an energy company, and it wanted to make electric vehicles because they saw the, the oil production going down in about 10 or 15 years. So they were very well invested, but they also wanted to do basic research. So they gave us freedom to do basic research, and without the freedom, you're not going to make the big inventions. So they are very much um, supportive of us in the battery area. They did fuel cells, solar cells, essentially everything. So you need the freedom to do it, but you also need really the resources behind you to do it. And uh, as we've also not only comment in the past, but get the impression from you today, this is a decades-long process that leads to a prize. So who knows, maybe all the questions we've asked in the past um, will will, will take care of themselves when uh, in one or two decades from now, all the innovation that we've seen in South Korea in the last decade uh, will be recognised. But coming on to um, batteries again, while we have time, I just wanted to talk to you about the the future of, of rechargeable batteries. Smartphones maybe have gone almost as far as they can go uh but but electronic vehicles are just at the very start of their development one suspects uh, how important is it that we continue to develop their rechargeable capabilities because it does seem to be a practical limitation at this moment i think you have to look at electric vehicles in two ways one is the all-electric vehicle which I feel most people are going to use around town for short trips. Then in countries as large as the United States, where you want to go on long trips, I suspect plug-in hybrid electric vehicles may take more control. You can do all your commuting on the battery, but then if you have to drive you know, 200 miles, 300 kilometers, you can use a clean internal combustion engine to do that. We've seen South Korea take a double. Uh, uh, sorry, I, I'm just going to say we've seen South Korea take a double approach to this. On the one hand, trying to consider how we're going to push forward electric vehicles at, at the corporate level, but also uh, the government's got really involved in hydrogen-powered vehicles. Is that, in a sense, a more of a practical solution then, when when you're not restricting yourself to town driving? Um, in Certainly in the U.S., I think people are cool on personal cars being hydrogen. 
because the hydrogen refueling stations are extremely expensive. So the perception here is fleet vehicles, delivery trucks, buses, all those could easily go to hydrogen, but it's unlikely to happen at the individual car level until we start you now sharing cars and things like that. But I don't see us buying our next um, Nissan car or Hyundai car being um, hydrogen fuel cell driven because the other issue is where does the hydrogen come from? There's also the question of where the electricity comes from. Electric vehicles sound wonderful, but they require a huge amount of power to constantly recharge them. And when or if we're all doing that, that's still going to be a drain uh, on on energy resources. And, and of course, um, it, it kicks the problem slightly down the road for large oil companies and other producers of fossil fuels. That they're still going to be very much in demand unless we resolve that issue. Yeah, I think the the big push in the U.S. and other countries right now is um, wind and solar, and they need lithium batteries to smooth that energy output and also for storage. So I think in New York State, they're going to be 50% renewable within the next 10 or 15 years. And the goal there is you maybe charge your car from the sunshine or wind you get during the daytime. So the goal is to shift all the... um, power production away from coal and certainly in my state it's almost all gone to gas now plus obviously nuclear is still important here right uh, nuclear of course if it wasn't so dangerous would be just the, the golden ticket here do, do you suspect there's yet any property or any element out there that could be helpful for rechargeable batteries that we haven't discovered yet or or do you feel those questions have been exhausted by your decades of research and those of your contemporaries I think, you no. Know, these days there are thousands of researchers looking for new batteries. It's not fair. Anything is going to store more energy than a lithium-based battery because that has the highest voltage. It has the lowest weight. But I think the other components of the battery could well change in the next 10 years. And obviously one of those is to use lithium combined with sulfur. One final question for you, if you could leave us with some advice. Actually, it was Professor Kiro Yoshino who advised scientists to do a lot of useless things, regardless of their immediate use. What would you say to people out there who are seeking innovation in whatever field they're in? I, I say to students, everybody, enjoy yourself, take risks, don't be conservative. You don't take risks, you won't make breakthroughs. But the main thing is to enjoy yourself and what you're doing. Right. Don't want to take too many risks on live radio because I can't easily go back on my words. But um, (laughs) Professor M. Stanley Whittingham, it's great to have you with us on the line. Very inspiring. Thank you very much. Professor Whittingham there from Binghamtown University. And uh, more importantly of late, his title, the 2019 winner of Nobel Prize in Chemistry.